Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. And again, welcome to fellowship and uh, welcome to our time of, uh, of worship and uh, gathering together in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're new to fellowship, welcome. We're glad you're here. I hope that you've already been welcomed and received well uh, by our church. And, um, and I pray that you're just blessed by being a part of our service today. I wanted to start <clears throat> uh, this morning by uh, just saying thank you to all of you, to our congregation uh, just for the, the cards of encouragement and the notes of encouragement uh, that you gave uh, to me and to the other pastors uh, for uh, pastor appreciation. Uh, many of them were just so encouraging. So many different ways that you shared that how God is working in your life through the ministry of this church. And I just have to tell you how what a blessing that is for your pastors to hear. So thank you very much for that. Uh, we are blessed uh, to, uh, to be here and a part of this church. And uh, so we, we wanted to say thank you to you for that. And I also wanted to say thank you to uh, everyone who helped um, and, and served uh, as part of our hosting uh, the Gettys last weekend for the concert. It was an incredible time of worship in this room. And uh, so thank you to, uh, to Laura and thank you to our pastoral staff and everyone on staff and every one of you that helped. There were so many that made that possible. That was clearly a church effort and uh, one that I believe uh, God was clearly glorified in when this room was filled with voices uh, singing praise to God. So uh, we're so thankful for that and look forward to doing more of that in the future. <clears throat> I'm going to... Um, continue in a uh, series that we started back in uh, September, Ruined, a Biblical Understanding of Sin. Uh, believe it or not, only two weeks, uh, two, two more weeks left. I told you when we started that, we'll go into November and here we are. And uh, so today we're going to be looking at the second part of our response to sin. Last week, uh, we looked at godly sorrow, which is a response to sin. And now today we're focused on biblical repentance, this idea of biblical repentance. And I thought it would be a, a nice lighthearted way to start by looking at the way uh, kids repent. Uh, I found some notes of, of, of repentance or apology on uh, Pinterest that I wanted to share uh, with you, and I think it'd be a good way for us to kind of look at this. So let's, let's take a look at this first one. Um, here, we'll put up here on the screen, and, and you'll see that this, uh, this little child says, uh, I am sorry for nothing. And, um, and so this would be an example of, of not biblical repentance, uh, but they do get credit for honesty. And, um, and, and here's another one. Uh, there, so many of these were so good. This is what Liam wrote. We'll put up here what Liam wrote. He wrote, dear Brody, uh, Miss P, probably his teacher, made me write you this note. All I want to say sorry for is not being sorry because I tried to feel sorry, but I don't. Liam. And uh, again, I, I'm reading these and I'm thinking, boy, this is, uh, you laugh and uh, it's just, it, it just shows so much of how kids just lay it out there. Uh, but you got to love the honesty. Uh, Liam is sorry for not being sorry. Uh, he really tried. He tried to be sorry. He couldn't be. So he's sorry about that. 
which is a very interesting way to look at repentance. And uh, then my last example is an exchange. I had to share this one. This is an exchange between Aiden and Alyssa. Uh, so the teacher probably uh, sat down with these two and said, you need to, you need to you know, apologize to each other. So this is Aiden's uh, first. We'll put this one up. It's harder to read, but I'll read it to you. Uh, Dear Alyssa, I'm sorry for shoving you, but you were standing where I always stand. <laughs> but there was no reason to elbow me in the mouth. I was bleeding a little bit. You should be sorry. But I'm sorry for shoving you in the first place. So I'm sorry. So I'm not sure Aiden is really repenting here. Because in the middle of his repenting, he made sure Alyssa knew that she should be repenting. Which is, again, kids reflect what they see in us, right? So what did Alyssa have to say to this? Dear Aiden, we'll put Alyssa's up. I'm sorry for elbowing you in the mouth, but I did it for one reason. You shoved me. First of all, you're the one who shoved me. She's doing, she's putting a list. She's a lister. Second of all, you shouldn't push. Third of all, you played a stupid game. Elbowing you in the mouth was your stupid prize. (laughs) It, it, It was an accident. Uh, And here's my favorite part of her note. Love, Alyssa. That's my favorite part. Uh, Love, Alyssa. So again, kids only reflect what they are learning from adults. But I think anybody who teaches in elementary school, little kids, probably has had so many examples of of this where they just... (laughs) They don't know how to apologize yet. They don't know how to repent yet. And I think we can certainly, uh, we can reflect on that and learn uh, from that. So these would be examples of, of not biblical repentance. These are not examples of biblical repentance. And, and, and that was a light way to start. And I thought it would be good because from here, it's going to get much more serious and heavy uh, as we go through this uh, teaching today. Today, you're going to learn what biblical repentance is. You're going to look, you're going to learn what it looks like. Um, I'm going to show you what it's not. We're going to see what it's not. And, uh, and then what we're going to do is we're going to conclude our service. Uh, we, didn't, we didn't forget communion. Um, we're going to have communion as part of our response uh, to the message. And I think it's going to be a reflection of how the gospel is so central to, uh, to repentance and our understanding of it. So let's pray and ask the Lord to lead us. Would you pray and ask the Lord to speak to you as he desires to, as the spirit of God desires to, and may he use his word uh, to do the work that he wants to do in you. Lord God, thank you for your word and your truth. And Lord, as we approach this uh, topic of re- biblical repentance, may you teach us, holy God, Um, what we need to learn about this very difficult uh, biblical idea, the idea of repentance. We know the word, we talk about it. We even had some lighthearted examples of of kids trying to reflect it. But Lord, we, we need to learn how to do this in a way that is honoring and glorifying to you. So help us to do, to learn from that today and then to do it, to respond in the way that you desire for us to respond. So go before this, uh, the words that I share, this message, um, and would you open hearts and minds to receive in Jesus' name, amen. So uh, last week, and I should say, I have a lot of notes for today. I, I want to just say up front, 
don't feel like you have to try to keep up because it will be available um, online. You can catch up afterwards. I really want to make sure that you're just listening and hearing and allowing uh, the, the words, the, the word of God uh, and the message itself to really just impact your heart and your mind. But we learned about one response to sin last week, godly sorrow. So again, today is the second biblical response, repentance. The very beginning of Christ's ministry, the very beginning in Matthew chapter four, Jesus' first sermon, he, he, after his ministry is started, we're very early here, his first message is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then you go to Luke 24, right before his ascension, right before he leaves, and he, and he looks to his apostles and he says, repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. And, and, and so what we see here is that repentance was really at the heart of Christ's ministry and his message. And it should be at the heart of our gospel message as well, if we're going to be gospel witnesses in this world. I want to start today by giving you five biblical truths about repentance. And these are truths that every Christian, every believer should know and understand. And they should be the foundation of what you understand repentance to be. Anytime we talk about things that are biblical, our answers when people ask us, what is it that we believe about this, shouldn't just be our opinion. They should be a, a, an answer that is founded on the word of God. And so these are truths about repentance. First one is this, only God can grant repentance. We get this from 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 25. And in this letter, Paul is writing to Timothy and he's talking about those who are causing trouble and stirring up divisiveness in the church and doing it even through false teaching. And he said, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. We need to understand something about about repentance, God grants repentance. It's a biblical idea. Second is that God's kindness leads us to repentance. We get this from Romans chapter two, verse four, which we have taught through here. And, and just a couple weeks ago, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing something. Do you presume upon God? Because if you do, you presume because you don't know something. You don't know that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. And again, uh, exposited this passage just a couple weeks ago. It's the kindness of God that brings us to the place of repentance. Repentance is good. God is being kind when he brings us to repentance. Third, godly sorrow precedes and brings about repentance. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because the whole message last week was about this. 2 Corinthians 7, we looked at it in detail. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. Worldly sorrow brings death. And that's why we started there last week before we talked about repentance because godly sorrow precedes it. Fourth, repentance leads to a knowledge of the truth. Again, from 2 Timothy chapter 2, God perhaps would grant them repentance leading to something. It leads to a knowledge of the truth. Repentance helps you with something. 
It helps you know the truth about a situation. We gain knowledge. You gain knowledge. You gain, you gain understanding. You gain truth when you repent biblically. And when we resist repentance, we're resisting truth and knowledge. And we see that in the world today. And you can certainly see that, I'm sure, in your lives. And then fifth, God commands all people to repent. These are truths about repentance. God, God commands repentance. In Acts chapter 17, verse 30 and 31, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. All people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. Everyone is to repent of their sins to God. It's a command So I ask you to not repent when it's commanded would be to disobey the command of God. And all of us as Christians, if if you are a born again believer, you've trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, that means you have repented. For that to happen, you, you had to have done that then you should have an understanding biblically about repentance. And these truths should be the foundation of what you understand repentance to be. In other words, a Christian should never say to someone, oh, they just really sounded like, that that had to be true repentance because it just really sounded that way. None of that is what we we learned here. That's just subjective feeling. But we have a biblical understanding of what it is. Now, if there is such a thing as true biblical repentance, then we know something about what we've learned through this series, and that is our enemy will imitate it. He will try to deceive us, because whatever God does that is good, he imitates. We call this counterfeit repentance, false repentance, which means it's possible to do something. It is possible to put away sin, a sin, particular sin, a group of sins, a category of sin, whatever, however you want to say it, it's possible to put away sin without true biblical repentance taking place. How, how is this possible? How can this be possible? Let me give you some examples. First, one I want to share with you is this. When sin is put away because it is no longer a pragmatic way to live, that's not biblical repentance. You can put away big sins for practical reasons. You know, I used to, a person could say, I used to party every weekend. You know, I'd get drunk, I'd get high, hang out with my friends. I just can't do that anymore. I'm too old. I can't bounce back the way that I used to. You know, it's not healthy for me. Those are pragmatic reasons. That's not biblical repentance. You know, I used, to, I used to sleep around, but I don't anymore because I don't want to, I'm in a current relationship right now with somebody that, that really means a lot to me. And, 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 and I really think that, you know, he or she is a keeper, so I can't really do that anymore. That's a, that's a practical, pragmatic reason. Actually, you're the, you're the source of that reason. It has nothing to do with biblical repentance. I used to cheat and steal at work and get away with stuff, but... I don't do that anymore because I have kids now and I can't really lose my job. And if I do, you know, it'll be such a hassle. So I, I've just stopped. It's getting too risky. 
Those are pragmatic reasons. That's not biblical repentance. So that's one example. Second is when a big sin is put away while lesser sins are tolerated and maintained. That's also not biblical repentance. In other words, you got rid of the so-called big sin, but but you're, you're kind of okay with the little sins. Or maybe another way to say it is you got rid of the socially unacceptable sin because it's socially unacceptable, but you've embraced the more socially acceptable sins because they don't seem to really get you in any trouble at all. People seem to be perfectly okay with those. We see this a lot today. Our line as Christians is not what is socially acceptable or unacceptable. It is God's standard. Third, when an old sin is left behind, but a new sin takes its place. I'm going to put away one and grab a hold of another. This is why recovery ministry must be rooted in the gospel. The 12 steps may get you sober. And to be sober is good. But we cannot confuse soberness and sobriety with spiritual salvation. They're not the same. If you, if you replace intoxication from a substance, whatever that substance is, alcohol, prescription drugs, illegal drugs, whatever it might be, if you, if, you, if you substitute that and say, I got rid of that, my life is so much better without that, but you embrace materialism and, or greed, covetousness, some other sins or other idol in your life, you've simply swapped sins. And particularly, you've probably swapped a more socially unacceptable one with one that is a little bit more acceptable. Think about this. A slave that moves to a new master is still a slave. Biblical repentance is not about becoming a slave to a new sin. It's about freedom from sin through Christ. Fourth, when sin is put away because it's brought, it's brought too much pain and suffering into your life. Some people put away sins because they've learned the hard way. Life has taught them some hard lessons through pain and suffering. The Bible's very clear. The way of the fool, you read through the book of Proverbs, the way of the fool is filled with calamity. So you can learn practically that that's just not a way to live. And you can say, you know what? It's not worth it. I'm not going to do that anymore. It's not, again, necessarily biblical repentance. A person that goes to jail for a crime may never commit that crime again. Why? Because they may have said, I don't want to go to jail again. And that may not be at all biblical repentance. If pain and suffering alone were sufficient to produce biblical repentance, just pain and suffering alone, then hell itself would have the most repentant people. And that's not the case. So we're not simply looking to put away certain sins. What we're seeking, what we're talking about here today is biblical repentance. Repentance according to the scriptures, according to the gospel. And that is something altogether different. So now let's take a look, now that we've kind of set up what it's not, let's take a look at what biblical repentance is. And I want to try to define it 
first, and then we'll break it down some more. Biblical repentance is a product of God's grace, whereby a sinner is inwardly convicted of their sin against God, resulting in both internal and external supernatural transformation. First thing you need to recognize is that first phrase. It is a product of God's grace. Not practical benefit. It's a product of the grace of God where a sinner, which we've identified and and explained several weeks ago when we started this, is inwardly, their heart is convicted of their sin against God and it results in something. It results after that conviction in leading a person to the point where internal and external transformation takes place. And the transformation is not natural, it's supernatural. It's of God. So I want to take some time to explain this in even more detail. We're going to break down repentance even more. As we go through this, the uh, Puritan uh, Thomas Watson wrote about repentance in his book, The Doctrine of Repentance. I highly recommend that book for reading. If you've never read Puritan writing, it can be a little, a little difficult, but that book is an excellent book about uh, repentance. You can order, if you would like to order uh, copies of that, you can do that through our resource center, which is in the community room. Um, there's books there. You can see Lori, uh, Valencia, she can order things for you. Uh, we order and, and, and recommend, uh, pastoral, uh, pastoral recommended resources for you so that you know you're getting, uh, resources that, that we vetted from at least a scriptural biblical standpoint. And in this book, what Watson does is he, is he lists ingredients, what he calls ingredients of true repentance. And he listed six of them. And I want to review those with you because I think it's very helpful in understanding what true repentance is. And each of these must be present for true biblical repentance to be taking place. So let's go through these, uh, these six. The first one is this, sight of sin. This is the part of repentance where we see our sin for what it is. Now we've talked about this early in the series, when we explained what is sin and indwelling sin, we see our sin for what it is. It's evil. We see the evil of our sin. The first thing that God created light. When Jesus came to earth, the scripture says the light has come and the light shines where in the darkness, true repentance requires that we see our sin as evil before our holy God. We allow the light to shine into the darkness. So we have the sight of sin. In other words, we see our sin for what it is. The second ingredient he lists is sorrow for sin. I'm not going to take much time there because we did that last week in, in great detail. Godly sorrow, sorrow according to God. And again, it's why we started there. Third is confession of sin. And I would like to stay on this for a little bit because I think this is an area where we could really use some explanation. First John 1, 9, many of us as believers are very, very familiar with this, right? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and he is just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is a beautiful verse in 1 John 1. If we confess... 
But we need to understand what is biblical confession. What does it mean to confess? Is it, is it just going to a priest in a confessional? Would that be just exactly what John would be talking about here? No, I don't think so. I don't think that's exactly what he has in mind. And I think we'll, we'll see that as we go through this today. But confession, what it is, is it's full and complete agreement with God about your sin and it's brokenness over that sin. But it starts with full and complete agreement with God about your sin. It's not just telling someone you sinned and having them say back to you that you are absolved of that sin if you do these things. That's not it. It's confession is when you agree with God about how God sees your sin. That's where it starts. You see your sin as God sees it. So true biblical confession, and I think as evangelical Christians, we really need to understand this better. It starts with admission. So you admit, you say, it is sin, God. I agree with you not only that it is sin, but I agree with you on the wickedness of it. It's not enough just to say it's sin. It's, you have to go further than that and see the wickedness of it. So you agree with God. You see your sin as he does. Now, if that's what confession is, what are the marks then of true biblical confession? First, biblical confession is voluntary. It's not forced. Biblical confession is not a police interrogation where you find yourself unknowingly being led into confession. You didn't even realize you did that. You know, like, in a, like, a, like what they would do with a criminal, they kind of get them to say that they did it without them even realizing that they just said it. That's not what biblical confession is. You know what you did. And if you, didn't, if you don't, then you're not on the road of biblical confession. You, that's where it starts. You know. Second, biblical confession is accompanied by sincere brokenness over sin. We see this in Psalm 51. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. In biblical confession, there is always brokenness over sin. Spirit-given brokenness. Third, biblical confession is specific and timely. It's not general and delayed. When a believer confesses sin to God, it should be specific and it should be timely. Remember when we looked at Hebrews 4 a couple weeks ago? No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. God knows and sees all things. So God knows all, all anyway. So our confession should not be general. You're going to bed at night, dear Lord. I'm sure there was a bunch of sins I committed today. Please forgive me of them. In Jesus' name, amen. That's not confession. That's, I mean, we may think it is. It's, it's, it's not. It should be specific. Lord, forgive me for the anger that I felt in my heart today towards that person. Because that, that, what you're revealing to me is that anger that rose up in me, that, that's sin, and I agree that you see it as sin and I want to see it as sin and I want to understand it as sin. And I ask you, God, to kill that in me because that's not of you. That's confession. 
And you can replace that anger with how many, right? Lord, I see that unbelief in my heart. I see where things went bad today in my life. Things didn't go as expected. And you know what happened? I, unbelief crept up in my heart where I started to doubt you. I started to doubt that you're good. I started to doubt that, you're, that you love me. I started to doubt that, you're, that my hope can be in you. Forgive me. I see that as sin because you're good and you do love me. This is confession. It should be timely. You shouldn't be praying over dinner or lunch and that's the first time you're confessing unless you're just perfect till dinner and lunch. Just one of those Christians. If so, talk to me afterwards. I'd like to know how you're doing it. But your, you know, your dinner time or supper prayer shouldn't be, dear Lord, I confess all the sins I committed today. Bless this food. Amen. It's not biblical confession. That's, that's getting stuff off our mind. I just got to, I got it this off my mind. Biblical confession is frequent and it's specific. It's driving to work and before we get out of the car, we're already confessing because on the way, we couldn't get there without vile thoughts going through our mind about every other driver on the road and the construction and the potholes and everything else that we see, right? I mean, how many, how many times, and, and you might think, oh, that's, you're, just, you're just getting crazy, pastor. But what I'm saying is what, what happens is God is revealing things about our heart in those in those situations, and we need to let him. We need to let the spirit of God as he reveals those things, say, Lord, I see that. I see where those things rose up in me. Forgive me. I see the way I responded to that driver. And before you leave work, Lord, forgive me because I couldn't get through today because all the thoughts that I have about my boss and my coworker and this person and that person are so, Lord, forgive me for those thoughts because I know they're not of you. See, that's frequent and specific. And let me just tell you, if you practice this, it will dramatically improve your walk with the Lord because you're gonna be talking to him all the time. <laughs> And guess what you're not talking to him about? Everybody else's problems. You're talking to him about what he's doing in you. Because you don't have time, right? How could you? There's so much stuff going on here. I, I, I can't worry about what everybody else is doing. So biblical confession is specific and timely. It's not general and delayed. And, and fourth, biblical confession is accompanied with a resolve not to return to that sin. Biblical confession doesn't, in the midst of confession, have a plan back to the sin being confessed. You enter confession with a spiritual resolve for God to have that sin killed in you, mortified in you. And there's so much good in biblical confession. Uh, I want to just very quickly, I don't have time to, to, to uh, talk about these. I could, uh, 10 minutes on each, but I, I don't have time. Uh, so I want to just list these five things of spiritual good of biblical confession. There's way more than five, but I want to at least give you five. Uh, first is it brings glory to God. When, when, you're, when this is how you live each day, you're bringing glory to God because you're making much of the gospel every time you confess. Because when you confess, what you're saying is my sin is great, but Jesus is greater. 
It brings humility to our soul. Do you want to know something about confessional people, people who are truly confessional? You can't be prideful. It's hard to be prideful. Prideful people are typically not confessional. Because confession, confession before God will keep you humble. It brings comfort to our troubled hearts because our hearts are troubled over the things we've done, but confessing them to God brings comfort. It brings cleansing to that which is defiled and and the river of God's mercy and the water just cleanses us and purifies us and we feel and we know that we've been cleansed by the forgiveness of God and it brings us to Christ and it brings us to the cross. Because it reminds us of what Jesus has done for us, which is what this table reminds us of because there is no point in any of us ever confessing a single thing if it wasn't for Jesus where that sin has been taken care of where he suffered and he died for us. All right. Back now, as we continue to go through this list of, of these ingredients, fourth is shame for sin. And you might think, well, wait a minute. I thought we, you know, shame is bad. There, there, there's, a, there's, a, there's a wrong way to look at this and a, and a, and a right way uh, to look at this. And we need to make sure that we're looking at it in the right way. When, when the prodigal son, when, when he came home and, and he said to his father, he said, I, I am unworthy to be your son. He said, I'm unworthy to be your son. What is that? He's, he's ashamed of what he's done. He's ashamed of, of, of how he's lived. He's ashamed of who he is and, and who he has become. And in his recognition of unworthiness, which is really what shame, uh, the, the right way we, should, we would look at shame, is the recognition of your unworthiness, he found his worth. Because his father said, as soon as he said that, I'm unworthy to be your son. His father responded, bring the robe. Bring a ring and put it on his finger. Put shoes on his feet and kill the fatted calf. My son has returned. Shame over sin brings us to confession and repentance. And it reminds us of who we are in Christ. But we don't boast about our past sins. We don't boast about our our current sin. We're ashamed of the things we've done. But like the prodigal, we go home to our father and we find redemption. We find redemption and we find it through Jesus Christ. As I was thinking about this, it reminded me uh, of the lyric to that song, uh, My worth is not my own. Two wonders here that I confess, my worth and my unworthiness. Because they are, they're wonders. How, 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 does, how does it work? Only because of the gospel. Fifth is hatred of sin. So these are, again, all parts of what, of what confession is. Uh, we talked, again, a lot about this. We do not hate self, but, but we hate our sin. And we do not hate sin. We shouldn't hate sin because of the potential of hell, but we should really hate sin as hell itself. We don't, I don't want to sin because of what might happen, but the sin itself. I want you to think about something. There may be no worse aspect of our sin than the fact that we not only sin, 
but that we love our sin. The loving of our sin is more evil than the committing of the sin itself because it reveals the affection of our heart. And Jesus said where our treasure is, that's where our heart can be found. If you still love to sin, I want to put this on the screen for you to see. You don't simply have a problem with committing sin. You first have a problem of loving the sin you commit. And that's where it starts, in your heart. Which leads us to this sixth and final ingredient, and that is turning from sin. Probably, for many, the most difficult. What does it mean to turn from sin? This is what a biblical turning from sin would look like. We must start with our hearts. We start with our hearts. This is why the love of sin is so wicked. Because to turn from sin, the heart must turn first. In Mark 7, Jesus is with his, his disciples and the Pharisees and the scribes are there. And they see the disciples eating and they haven't washed their hands. And they're grumbling among themselves. Can you believe these wicked people not washing their hands? And Jesus said, he called them out. And he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. Why? Because they're doing external things that they think are good, but their heart has not turned to me. We start with our hearts. Second, we must turn from all sin. Our goal is holiness and having Christ formed in us, right? Galatians 5, having Christ formed in us. We do not turn from some sins. We turn from all sin. We do not become comfortable with some sins. And again, in biblical repentance, that's what we're seeking to do. Third, we turn from sin in response to God and his holiness. Biblical repentance requires turning from sin for spiritual reasons, not pragmatic ones. We turn because God has changed our heart. The spirit of God is the source of our turning, not our personal benefit. Not because, oh, you know what? I just don't like myself that way. No, God is changing me. And we turn from our sin forth to God. In Acts chapter 26, Paul is before Agrippa and he says that he and the people should repent and turn to God. It's not enough to just turn from sin. You need to turn to God. Turning from sin is like removing the cancer, but but turning to God is the healing and the recovery. Turning from sin is like the removal of the arrow from the wound, but the turning to God is the healing the balm on the wound. So true repentance not only turns from sin, but it turns to God, turns to Christ, his truth and his ways. And then the final fifth, as we think about this turning from sin, is we turn from sin with no plan for return. We don't plan a return. To confess and repent of a sin that you already plan to return to is not really true repentance. To leave a sin with a plan to return is taking a break. I'm going to take a break from this, but I'll be back. That's that's not what biblical repentance is. It's, 
It's, I'm turning. And that doesn't mean you're, that doesn't mean you're going to be perfect, but, but you're, not, you're not planning a return. And when we do this, when we, when we repent with a plan for return, we give more power to that sin in our lives because we're effectively saying something. We're saying that sin is king. Sin, you're the master, I'm the slave. And that's exactly what Jesus has freed us from. Hebrews 12 says, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us. We're to throw it off. Ephesians 4 says, put on the new self and put off the old self. But you don't put the old self in a backpack, throw it on your back and say, I'll, I'll be back for you in a couple, couple days. No, you throw it off. We turn with no plan for return, trusting in the spirit of God doing the work. So this is what repentance is. And the question is, is this how you repent of your sin? That's the question I want you to be thinking about. Is this how you repent of your sin? I hope it is. From now through the end of the service, what you're going to do is have the time to respond. My hope is that you'll respond to the things that the Spirit of God and God is leading you. Maybe he's going to lead you to take time to confess, to repent, to turn. Use the time that we're going to have to sing around the Lord's table to confess and repent before the Lord. That's what, that's what we want to do in the time that we have left together is give you the opportunity to respond to what God is doing in your heart. Let's pray together. Lord God, thank you for your word and your truth. Help us now to respond to the truth of what biblical true repentance is. We thank you that you are so kind to give it to us, that you grant it to us. Help us to respond as we should. And even now, Lord, as we sing, <clears throat> may, we, may in our hearts we be open to the spirit of God and how he's leading. And even as we prepare for the table, Lord, may our hearts be prepared to continue to have the Holy Spirit do work in us. We ask you to do that, Lord. Teach us how to repent. In Jesus' name, amen.